So in, in the, the early 80s, I want to say it was uh, 81, 82, he put together a cabinet game uh, that was based off of the 80s, or, well, the 70s and 80s band Journey. And in this cabinet game, he installed uh, one of the earliest digital cameras so that people could, uh, they could press a button on the cabinet video game and put their head onto one of the characters as if they were a member of the band Journey. It was Midway who was going to buy this game and distribute it. And on day one, everything worked fine. Day two, some joker found a bar stool, stood up on it, turned around, dropped trowel, and took that photo for his avatar. And of course, the people at Midway said, absolutely not. Hello world, this is SpartaCast. All right. Hello and welcome to SpartyCast. I am director of the lab, but I'm here with SpartyCast producers, George McNeil, Taylor Halterman. How are you? Doing very well. Happy to be here. Thank you, Robbie. Where are we? We are in the basement of the Communication Arts and Sciences building on MSU's campus, room 24, the Sparty Lab. We're in the Sparty Lab. First time ever recording an episode in the Sparty Lab. Mm -hmm. um that's the good news what's the sad news george is stepping away as a producer to uh fly elsewhere this he's moving on to bigger and better things george thank you though this this podcast wouldn't have gotten off the ground if it weren't for you early on and uh and thank you for bringing tay on thank you both congratulations to tay our new producer of the podcast and uh and we're going to have an exciting semester, I think, mm-hmm. coming up. We've got we've got interns lining up, or at least one application so far. <laughs> um, and we we have a long list of of people to interview about the metaverse, about VR. So it's it's going to be a good one. But today is episode twenty three, in which I meet with Dr. Edward Downs, a, a friend and colleague. 23, yes, a good number. It's a number when you might consider graduate school, an age when you consider graduate school. Um, it is, of course, a basketball number. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let me pretend to know anything about basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I know very little, but 23 oh, yeah. is Michael Jordan's number. Mm-hmm. I just watched Space Jam recently. Okay. So you knew that. There's my Michael Jordan. I see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it's the 23rd element is vanadium, about which I know very little. It is a, it's classified as a transition metal, though, and perhaps that's appropriate because uh, this is a transition, transition. it's a transition moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, George is moving on, and we're Taylor's moving up, and we're getting some new banners in here. Oh, uh, yeah, for the oh, yeah, all this new logo. Very yeah, cool. yeah. George made the new logo. It's beautiful. I don't know if you've you've seen it. Is it on the website yet? Maybe it should be. Maybe by the time we get to this episode, we gotta <laughs> assign George all the tasks uh, before oh, yeah. he goes away. But just wanted to have you guys on the intro here for the episode. Thank you so much uh, for supporting the podcast and continuing its growth. Welcome, Doctor Edward Downs, to SpartyCast. Thank you it's so much for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Where are you right now? Uh, I am in my office at University of Minnesota, Duluth. Duluth, a land of many lakes, I hear. That's right, over 11,000. 
so if it's so beautiful, you've got all these lakes, why even spend time in virtual reality or video games, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, in the summertime, you spend as much time out time as you can, because uh, six to eight months out of the year here, it's just not, uh, it's not possible for everybody to do it. Okay, so, so those, those are the video game months. Right, exactly. And, uh, and so you're, you're a games researcher. We know each other through the International Communication Association's uh, Games Studies Division, which right. I think we've both belonged to for most of our careers, right? Um, as yeah, a right. student, you, you did game studies too, right? Absolutely. And you were at MSU um, for your bachelor's and master's wearing the shirt right there. That's uh, right, playing the colors. Yep, yep. Oh, by the way, uh, to, to the audience, this is my lab, the Sparty Lab. This is the first time I'm actually recording in the lab, Ed. Uh, Very nice. So it's momentous. Yeah, yeah. Usually it's been a, a virtual background, but finally the lab is ready and we're allowed to be on campus uh, mask-free if no one else is around. Actually, maybe I'm supposed to be wearing a mask, even if no one's around. I don't know. This is that's funny. This is actually the first uh, interview I've done in the communication research lab at UMD. So, okay, nice. So, is that that's your lab? Yes. Yep. And uh, what do you, what do you do there in the CRL? Yeah, that's actually CRL. That d.umn.edu. Uh, if anybody has questions, um, we uh, it's a lab that's been set up um, to study uh, video games, to study people's interactions. Uh, in games to study what they learn. Um, and currently we've been working on uh, some learning and augmented and virtual reality uh, in conjunction uh, with some of my colleagues in the computer science department. Nice. Uh, what types of learning? Um, it's uh, basically whether or not people can pull information from different types of these digital environments. Uh, and are there different affordances that we can put into VR and AR environments that increase the likelihood that people come out with information that's necessary to advance to uh, the next level of learning? All right. Um, let's unpack a term in there. Affordances. Yes. What's an affordance? So many people have, uh, have taken this on, um, but I think just the best way to understand it is just uh, what is a capability that is built into that environment. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, we we have undergrad listeners who might not have had the benefit of reading um, all of Don Norman's and um, the many other authors on the, the subject. But yeah, it's it's what what technology can do. I often just think of it as features, right? Like that's the simplest way to. Yeah. Okay. So, what types of uh, affordances are you looking at in VR that might affect how people learn? Sure. Uh, ours, uh, the affordances that we've been looking at uh, and are manipulating right now go back to Sundar's main model. Mm -hmm. uh, so looking at how... Uh, uh, let me pause. This is Sham Sundar from Penn State University, uh, a renowned scholar in our field of media technology and your former advisor, right? Uh, uh, he, I, I, I worked with Sham in the Media Effects Research Lab, but uh, Dr. Mary Beth Oliver uh, was my advisor. Oh, I see. Of course. My mistake. All right, so Sham's main model, which describes, can you give us a brief overview? Sure, uh, Sham proposed that there are uh, four technological affordances uh, that influence uh, how people uh, assess credibility uh, in a digital environment. Uh, he looked at affordances in terms of how they relate to internet use, uh, but they were easily adapted to VR and AR environments. Uh, and the, the, the four that we've been looking at that he identified were modality, Agency, interactivity, and navigability. Main. 
Yep, that, those are the four items, the four affordances in the main model. Got it. So modality is uh, is kind of like a richness. Uh, is it uh, yeah, text it's, or is it video, that kind of thing? It, it contributes to richness. Uh, he would say it's the structural features of a medium. So things like screen size, whether or not you use surround sound speakers, uh, uh, whether or not you use color versus black and white information, all of those things could be uh, ways to express modality. Got it. And the last one was navigability, right? Right. So navigability is not modality. Um, just keeping that in my head here as we try to transfer to the VR context. So sure. then interactivity, that, that one's pretty obvious, right? Like to what extent is there a cause and, and effect and effect and cause going from the user to the environment, right? Uh, Sundar situates these affordances inside, uh, uh, inside of the technology themselves. So it's, uh, it would have to do with whether or not there are, is, uh, is some potential to change uh, and manipulate what is happening inside that environment. Got it. Okay, so um, I cook a button, I shoot a thing at a wall. If, if, if I see an arrow go to the wall, if the wall changes after the arrow hits it, that's all interactivity. Absolutely. And then it could also be social interactivity. I say words, you hear words, you say words. Sure. Um, and then the A again was? Uh, agency. Agency. Okay. So do I have control over things, but not just interactivity, I guess. It's more than that. Right. Um, and it, it also has to do uh, in a lot of cases, uh, especially as, as he studies it in uh, terms of internet, but who do you uh, ascribe information as coming from? Uh, who do you perceive as the source of information? Got it. So am I interacting with an agent of the computer, kind of an algorithmic, non-playable character, a bot, or is there a human driving this avatar? And that perception changes how I'll interact with the environment, right? That would be a great example of it. But it's not just my perception of the agency of other interactants. What else is there? In, in what else is there agency? Uh, well, it, it, it also has to do in whether or not you perceive uh, whatever that happens to be, that bot or that other person, uh, as credible. Does mm. the information that comes from this particular digital environment, is it credible? Is it something that I should be paying attention to? Ah, that's so very relevant in the, the kind of news context, right? The media literacy is this information reliable um, and I imagine in a virtual environment, there are nonverbal cues that we use to determine credibility. Like maybe eye contact is, is a kind of colloquially, uh, even, even not eye, just eye contact, but eye movement. If someone moves their eye in a certain direction, I've heard that's a myth. Uh, <laughs> if you move your eyes in a certain direction, it's more telling that of a lie. But, uh, but in poker, right, there are tells for whether somebody's bluffing. So that kind of thing would relate sure. Agency? Absolutely. Interesting. And then um, navigability. So are we just talking like, uh, do I walk in the world or do I float around or do I teleport that kind of thing in VR? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the studies that we've been working on right now is uh, manipulating how people move through an environment. Uh, and how does that change people's perception of the environment? And how are they able to put together uh, pieces of information that they're supposed to learn in that environment. Uh, so if we allow them to physically walk in a 3D environment, does it change their understanding of that space 
uh, as opposed to if they teleport from one place to another. And, and so that's essentially, that's a, a type of learning. It's a spatial learning in a way that you're measuring. Yep, so spatial learning and spatial understanding. Uh, and some of the preliminary results that we found is in addition to spatial understanding, people also pulled more from narrative. Uh, so a narrative understanding uh, when they were able to, uh, to naturally walk long distances. So it's, it's actually crossed with type of motion in piloting, uh, whether or not they move in proximal or distal clusters. Whoa, interesting. So yes. this is uh, this reminds me a bit of embodied cognition, mm -hmm. the idea that you kind of you think with your body. It's not just all cerebral up in your brain, but as you kind of engage with your entire embodiment, um, that helps you think about the things that you're engaging with better. So when you move around a virtual space more naturally, then you're better at learning the story of that space. Right, uh, as, as well as a better understanding how the space fits together, being able to put the pieces back together, what was where, and how were things situated against each other. Um, and it's, it, it, we think that has something to do with what happens when people walk distances. Uh, when people are piloting longer distances, they kind of set up, they chart a course, but then it, the, the, the movement process is automatic. So they don't have to think about it. They get to reflect on the information for maybe five to 10 seconds. Whereas when you teleport, you just, you spend the time that you would have had to think about narrative to readjust to your new surroundings uh, in that couple of seconds. Interesting. So you just have to okay, kind of re so, and readjust to your environment. So it could be that, it could be an improvement in thinking from walking um or it could be a hindrance to thinking from teleporting exactly when you compare the two like what control you can't really have a control condition there's no not like, really it's like a i guess a no transportation condition where you just stay there but then maybe i don't know what was your experiment like did you have to move in order to get the narrative yeah yeah uh, I, I i can't say too much about it because <laughs> it's not uh, yeah but, but yeah, uh, it's, it, was, uh, it was an environment that people had to explore and put together the, the pieces uh, and understand what had happened in this particular situation. Sure, sure. Fascinating. Okay, so uh, let's take a step back. We've got this main model, uh, strong kind of theoretical foundation. I, I, I've seen presentations on it from Sham. I've read papers um, and seen it cited many times. Um, it's, not, it's not a theoretical model I've engaged with deeply in my own work, but, um, but with this familiarity and especially with your expertise, let's apply it to Ready Player One. Okay. Uh, I, know, I know you're a fan. Uh, I rewatched the film not long ago and I, I reread a bit of the book. I'm reading Ready Player Two now, which okay. I can tell you is, uh, it, it seems like an appropriate sequel. It's, it's got all the, all the same hit points as the first one with even more crazy technology. Um, but yeah, so main model and ready player one, where do you think the, the two might intersect? Well, uh, the, 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 the obvious one uh, for me is modality. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what I like about uh, ready player one, um, and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read it, you're probably gonna hear some plot, <laughs> plot things that you may not wanna hear. So uh, 
but uh, obviously modality. Uh, Ready Player One, um, when they engage, uh, it goes beyond just the simple, this is kind of VR. Uh, I get to hear and I get to see other people, but there's also a tactile component. Um, and having that tactile experience uh, in a very real way uh, changes uh, how people are in VR, right? So, so, so that sense thing. of embodied cognition, like when I do something, I feel it, I get that haptic feedback. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and that makes it more, more emotional and makes the learning experiences stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it would, uh, my guess is that it would make anything that happens, uh, I know this is kind of redundant, but feel like a real experience, uh, not just a virtual experience that I had that I can separate myself from, but something that is more likely to affect me as an individual because it did feel real. So, so there's the haptics and that's one element of modality. Um, but there, there are others, right? There's the kind of full visual field of um, engagement as opposed to a, a part of your attention screen um, or attentional resources with a smaller screen. Anything else in modality that you would think of as relevant? Sure, uh, I, I think something like 3D sound, um, the, the ability to hear from different directions. Uh, and, and to suggest that you, you aren't just seeing a 3D environment, but your body is experiencing sound in a 3D environment. Um, and so- a, Yeah, it's a subtle, it's a subtle cue, right? Right. Um, okay, a any other aspects of modality that, that make the, the technology envisioned in Ready Player One more like impactful? Um, I, we haven't really crossed those barriers. Uh, I mean, I, I know there are some researchers that are working on things like smell and taste, but that's not something that I think the, 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 the book really got into or that, uh, that we've got a long way to go before we can integrate those into those types of devices. Absolutely. I mean, uh, do you mind if I do a little spoiler here for Ready Player Two? Yeah, go ahead. So um, there's a new, this is introduced in the first chapter. Um, Shortly after Wade inherits the keys to the kingdom, he discovers another Easter egg of sorts with this new technology that it's a helmet um, that attaches to your, it's a non-invasive brain interface, essentially. So it's pretty much like the matrix, except you don't need a hole in your head and spine. Um, and then it like puts your body fully to sleep and then everything feels super real and okay. including taste and smell. Um, okay. But then I think pain is turned down. Um, there are a few things about it that they throw in for dramatic effect, perhaps like you can't spend more than 12 hours in it or else you go insane. <laughs> so, I mean, I imagine that this is just becomes this hedonistic kind of device where people can just really just tap out um, and kind of do whatever they want. You know, I mean, you can say that about that device, but you could say the same thing about VR from the perspective of what we, where we were before we had it. And even before that, I mean, comic books, <laughs> right? Like I think with each iteration of media, you have this sense of, a dread or excitement 
that people will be super immersed in it, which which can lead to moral panic. It can also lead to, you know, excitement. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, you know what? Uh, there have been instances, absolutely, of 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 moral panics. Uh, but people asking meaningful questions about effects is not a moral panic. I agree with you. There's, and the problem I have with moral panic is that nobody actually defines what is panic. Uh, it is not somebody asking a legitimate, reasonable question or, or advancing a caution that we don't understand everything yet is not a panic. And sometimes I think people tend to throw moral panic around a little too loosely. Ah, so what you're saying is there's moral panic panic. Yeah, th there are examples of moral panic. Uh, and you can go back historically, historically and see those where they're burning records and they're, they're pulling books off and they're doing all of these things. Those are the examples. But asking questions about what is appropriate, especially if you're a parent and you're looking at, some, uh, at what is an end result from this, is not panic. I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. And if there is one concern that I always go back to at the beginning of every video games can be good for learning talk, it is overuse is the biggest problem. And so being able to control our investment in time and spend time outside and with our friends in real life, uh, with our families, that's, that's important. Um, I don't think it's moral panic. Yeah, and I, I think pragmatically, it's just that there, there is a realization that everyone's going to draw a different line for what's okay for them and their families, kind of. Uh, but there's an understanding that yeah, there is no medium that I'm aware of that I could think of at right now that is just all good or all bad. Uh, like, how we choose to use it, how long we choose to use it, what we choose to do with it are all these things that make it better or worse. Yeah. Uh, so... I totally agree. And I, in some ways, somewhat ironically, I think Klein is, at least in this, in this Ready Player 2, is very aware of this kind of balance, this need for understanding both sides. Like it's, you might read the back cover of Ready Player 2 and think, wow, this is, this is pure uh, fan of VR fiction. But in fact, I think it's a bit critical about how deep people can go into these media um, at a loss of something that's meaningful. That doesn't mean everybody loses uh, mm -hmm. meaningful aspects of their lives. But if, you, if you're imbalanced, if you don't see both sides of the media use, then, um, then you might suffer. That's true. Sure. And I think just kind of, I think that's an overarching theme. I, this is getting off topic a little bit. But if you go to any of the uh, cyberpunk literature or any of the pre, what I consider pre-cyberpunk, like Brave New World, 1984, things like that, uh, if you read all the way through Neil Stevenson and uh, Ernest Cline, uh, Werner Vinge, you, you start to see that uh, th th they really do, uh, I think, a pretty good job of painting what, what the potential is, as well as identifying what some of the limitations can be. Uh, and so I, I think any good cyberpunk literature uh, or literature that predates that does a really good job at showing how great it can be and, and, and how we can lose control pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, it, I think that's a great, I don't think it's off topic at all. I mean, you're a, you're a media scholar, you study effects, um, positive and, and a bit, have you, have you looked at negative effects at all in your research or? Uh, I mean, a, 
I would say probably 75 to 80% of my research has, has been channeled towards pro-social effects. Mm -hmm. uh, so looking at uh, whether or not we can get people to uh, say that they'll stop driving distracted by putting them in a simulator and showing them what their capabilities are. Uh, I, I'd say uh, there are some, there are some, at least uh, when I was kind of coming up through the ranks, there were some fantastic scholars uh, and there still are doing some great work on looking at the negative effects, uh, but I kind of channeled my energy into looking at what some of the positive effects uh, of those technologies were. Um, and through that, that's kind of where I kind of get into looking at how learning can be better in these environments. Uh, it's not a question for me of, uh, are these environments capable of doing anything good? It's under what conditions can they be better at doing what they're supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why education is such a great area for media research. Like sure. you, can't, you can't go wrong uh, by making, by thinking about how media can make education more fun, more engaging, and then more effective at, at helping kids learn or adults for that matter. Um, yeah. Whereas, I mean, I guess there's value in all, all types of research, but, but I'm, I'm on the same wavelength as you are in terms of enjoying uh, enjoying some of the education outcomes. Um, and, and I also do look at negative effects, um, the negative sides like toxicity in gaming. Uh, have you engaged with that topic at all? Uh, just a little bit. Um, I've done some work with, with, uh, with, with students looking at um, uh, what kinds of things were said uh, in an online environment like playing uh, Call of Duty. Yeah. Um, and there are, of course, uh, there are toxic elements to online play. That's not necessarily a, a function of the game, but a function of the people that you happen to be interacting with at the moment. Um, and, and some of the research that we did on that uh, found that uh, while it certainly is there, uh, that we played lots and lots of rounds of games where there wasn't any at all. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's certainly not enough to condemn an entire franchise or uh, an entire group of people. Uh, it's there in its own measure. And a lot of times uh, what we find is people are just happy to tune in and then turn off the audio completely, listen to their own music and just play. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it's there enough that I think it, it's harmful in, in its own measure. Like you said, it's, it's not everywhere. And, and so the game companies are trying to combat it. What do you think about avatars as an approach to promoting more pro-social behaviors, reducing toxicity, reducing some of the kind of gendered stereotyping that we see in gaming? Yeah, you know, I, I think the, in your research actually speaks to this, that uh, the ability to represent yourself in a certain way and to uphold a certain standard or, or to see that standard modeled uh, when people get into an environment that's perhaps unfamiliar, they look for cues for how am I supposed to behave? Uh, and I think, uh, I think avatars are a great way to express and show not only good examples, but provide some sort of a, uh, a foundation or a schematic for what is acceptable in a community. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, uh, speaking of community avatars, we've got a, a Sparty as avatar study that we'll be, we'll be promoting once it gets published in the not too distant future um, with some potentially political results. <laughs> we looked at, we looked at um, misogynistic behaviors and the Proteus effect 
in in Sparty or other avatars. I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to make sure it, it it treads the line. Um, there are many lines to tread, but you know how it is. Absolutely. I actually have some. I actually have some questions for you. Uh, oh, talking about avatars. Yeah. Uh, and there, I love are, to do. <laughs> there, there are no right and wrong answers to these. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when you, you you've been studying avatars for a long time, where is the first for you? If you go back to Avatar One, mm -hmm. uh, when you think back to it, where does that go for you? What is the first Avatar? Oh, it's um, it's from Hinduism. That's that's as far as I go. Okay. Uh, well, so so you, we can go back five thousand years to the Bhagavad Gita, to to to, to the holy text. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the concept, but, but in, in modern usage, right. uh, quest of the avatar, right? Uh, okay. That's the game in which, oh my gosh, the name is slipping my mind. Was this like 1982? I or, was going to say, yeah, like 83, 84, 85, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. Quest of the avatar. Um, must have been reading the Bhagavad Gita or some other Hindu text and, and realized, oh, this is kind of a cool concept, a, a manifestation of, um, of a deity is called an avatar. And so maybe if we are like the deities and the game is like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a precursor to simulation theory in a way, right? Absolutely. Uh, that we're all living in a simulation and then the gods are the makers of the simulation, then when we make the simulations or at least play them, then we are embodying ourselves in, in these avatars like deities, um, according to those Hindu texts. So that's where I go. Um, do, do you have a, a and then Snow Crash after that as the popularization right. of the term. Um, and though, did Gibson use it? No, I don't think Gibson used it. He just used cyberspace in neuromancy. Yeah. Cyberspace and metaverse. Uh, well, the, no. not Gibson, that's Stevenson, but yeah. Yeah, so Stevenson used Metaverse and Avatar. What a, what a wordsmith. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he was obviously plugged into that, uh, plugged into that culture um, in, in a very real way to be able to, uh, to be able to expand on that um, and, and, and make it very real for people as they uh, read Snow Crash. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and Snow Crash inspired me and then like, and Neuromancer to join our field and study. Mm -hmm. study. I was like, wow, this stuff is really happening and it's being made and it's being written about in this fictional way that pretends the real future. So it was exciting to me. So, so I, was able, I was able to dig up uh, kind of video game history is always something that's been interesting to me. Go ahead. And I was, yeah. and I was able to find an instance that never quite made it, uh, it except uh, in Ralph Baer's autobiography. Okay. And it Ralph uh, maker of the uh, Atari, uh, uh, Magnavox Odyssey. Magnavox Odyssey before the Atari. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. In the eighties. In the uh, well, the Odyssey would have been seventies, late sixties, early seventies. Oh wow! Okay, uh, was when he put together the brown box that led to the Odyssey. Okay. Uh, and, but, so go on. Yeah, what's the so, reference? So in, in the, the early 80s, I want to say it was uh, 81, 82, he put together a cabinet game uh, that was based off of the 80s, uh, well, the 70s and 80s band Journey. 
And in this cabinet game, he installed uh, one of the earliest digital cameras so that people could, uh, they could press a button on the cabinet video game and put their head onto one of the characters as if they were a member of the band Journey. And uh, it, was, uh, it was Midway who was gonna buy this game and distribute it to put in arcades all across the country. Wait, so wait, you put, it was like a device you put on like a head-mounted display? Or... No, uh, it, it was a camera that they actually uh, installed into the video game cabinet itself. Okay. And it would take a digital, a very low resolution uh, picture of the player's head, store oh, okay. it in RAM, and then put it on the character as you played. In the 70s? Uh, in the, uh, it was like, uh, I think it was 1981 or 1982. Oh my God. Wow. Right. And, and so they wanted to do a test. Uh, they were, uh, Midway was ready to buy all these cabinets and it was about to be this huge deal, but they said, we want to see it in an arcade, we want to do a pilot test. So they arranged to do it. And on day one, everything worked fine. It was people loved this game. Day two, some joker found a bar stool, stood up on it, turned around, dropped trowel, and took that photo for his avatar. Ah. <laughs> and of course, the people at Midway said, absolutely not. Oh, no. Uh, so, I mean... Wow. Uh, father of video games, uh, actually able to try to create something to go into the public sector and people will do what people do. Uh, yeah, he was an acetar, huh? Yep. Uh, that's, exactly, that's exactly what he was. Um, but wait, was the term avatar used? No. Oh, no I think it, it, was, it, was, it was not being used. And I think that would predate uh, Flight of the Avatar. Sure. Is it Flight of the Avatar or Quest of the Avatar? Quest of the Avatar. Quest of the Avatar. Right. Cool, cool, cool. I just want to make sure I got it right. You, you clearly know your game history and Avatar history. That's, that's a funny story. Wow. So the first digital Avatar um, was trolled by a, okay. yeah. by a mooner. Yep. Wow. Okay. The, uh, the, the, the people at Midway said, we, we can't have... Um, men and women taking pictures of the because the high school and what at that the end what would happen is your face or your your avatar would be put next to the high score and they just had <laughs> visions of different body parts all up and down the high score oh my gosh that's hilarious um well yeah you're right humans will be humans people do what people do especially uh young men with hormonal kind of <laughs> drives to do things right. that are outlandish. Um, sorry to all the young men out there. I am no longer one of you, um, but I was once and I did a bunch of stupid stuff in that time period. And mm -hmm. I, 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 I wish my kids won't, will be able to skip that, um, but I doubt that's going to be true. Same here. <laughs> But I guess as long as we keep doing uh, research on promoting pro-social behaviors and education through games, maybe there's a chance we can fix the world. <laughs> well, you know, and, and uh, one of the things, I, I listened to some of your podcasts uh, in the last couple of weeks. Oh, thanks. And one of my absolute favorite ones was where you got to uh, speak uh, with your dad. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I, it, it made me think uh, that at that episode made me think 
the idea of having an avatar is an expression of oneself in, in some digital environment, right? And it seems to me that exclusivity, uh, that he was talking about business models. Uh, and I started thinking about wh what is a plausible business model for avatars? Because if people have an image and they're trying to cultivate an image or, or cultivate uh, perhaps even a brand through an avatar, I've been reading a lot, uh, a lot about uh, NFTs, these non-fungible tokens that are being sold right now. Yeah. Is it plausible or possible that a business model for avatars looks at that kind of NFT model and says, you can exclusively have this, this collection of code that represents you that nobody else can recreate. And so people could know whether or not this is actually legitimately you endorsing something because there's an NFT, some NFT attached to it. Absolutely. Um, and it seems to me if, if branding is important and image is important um, and being able to control that, that we don't want other people creating our likeness and the way that you can do that is through NFT. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think that's one of the major pieces of the excitement behind the metaverse. Just today, uh, I, I put out this piece on the conversation with one of my students defining the metaverse. Have you seen some of this, this fervor around this concept recently? I've not. So you're well familiar uh, with the idea from Stevenson. Like we knew about this idea in 2005, maybe uh, at the latest. And it's just, we've kind of just taken it for granted as something that's exciting to think about. We see it in the matrix. We see it in the Oasis or it is the Oasis in Ready Player One. But I think because of Ready Player One and maybe some other fictional portrayals and, uh, and the pandemic, Within the last year, Silicon Valley is going nuts for the, the metaverse. It's all over my LinkedIn feed. People are, are building the metaverse, metaverse companies. Uh, Zuckerberg, of course, has invested mm -hmm. since 2014 in Oculus, but only now people are starting to get it. I mean, when he bought Oculus, um, apparently it was one week after he'd gone, I think this is okay to tell as a public story. Nah. I don't know if I should tell this is a public story. He went and visited someone who I know's VR lab and okay. a week later bought Oculus for a billion dollars, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, he saw the potential. He's like, wow, social will be embodied. Social will be immersive. Um, but more recently, he's been talking about the metaverse, which took a moment for me to wrap my mind around because we've got all these different virtual worlds, right? Like, Fortnite is, is separate from Minecraft, is separate from VR chat. But what if right. they're not? What if they're connected? What if you can take your same avatar from one virtual environment to another? And it really sunk in when I, uh, when I interviewed Timu Toke, CEO of Wolf3D, who does this Ready Player Me um, product. You can take the same avatar across all these different um, virtual worlds because they all rely on the same standard essentially. Right. And then when writing this conversation for, or writing this piece for the conversation, I was reading a bit um, and the, the foundation of the future metaverse, which I guess is essentially just an interoperable set of virtual worlds, kind of like the internet is an interoperable set of uh, websites, sure. that, but with, with uh, immersive spaces. Um, the fundamental technology is blockchain 
is is crypto because like like you kind of uh, intuitively came to understand about NFTs, if you can treat these objects as exclusive, as non-transferable, beyond one owner, you can track how it's being used, then then yeah, you can send it all around the internet or the inter-virtual meta, whatever you want to call it, uh, cyberspace. And and so I'm 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 with you. It's exciting. We got to start studying this because I think the whole yeah. technology sector is about to bet big on on this metaverse thing. Oh, absolutely. And the, I mean, there's there's so many different ways that people can go with it. I mean, everything is interconnected already. Now it's just uh, creating the the three dimensional or the 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 apparently th- uh, three dimensional universe that it exists in, uh, and that's a that's a whole new frontier. Uh, Anybody who is interested in this is able to get in on the ground floor right now in the construction of what that universe is going to look like. Absolutely. But like, like you just said, though, on the other hand, it's been around, man. <laughs> like it's been interconnected. We've had the web for 20 years operating quite well. So to the, the main difference is this embodiment, which as you also have been finding in your studies, it, it it helps with learning how you navigate walking from one place to another that affects how you perceive the information. So I get that it's an augmentation of the experience that, that we've had. Um, on the other hand, I think it's less different and new than we might portray it to be in the news just because we like the attention. We like the feeling of novelty, but fundamentally it's, it's another step in this longer progression that we've had. Sure, and I, I think there's there's still a lot of things that um, the, the technology has come so far in the last it, even just five to six years, uh, it has come so far, but there is still so much work that needs to be done. Um, for example, uh, we've been working with uh, what happens when we try to create a learning space, where uh, in virtual reality or an augmented reality, where we try to have more than one person, and what we find is that network connections, uh, in the ability. For, uh, for a device to render a second set of information really just isn't there yet. Uh, it, is, it is so complicated uh, to be able to represent another person digitally in the space that you occupy and know what they're doing, know where they're walking to, know what they're looking at. Um, it's even hard to do things like take notes. Uh, the, the, the team that I've been working with in computer science here at UMD uh, shout out to uh, Pete Williamson, uh, uh, ha- has been working on things like, how do we take notes in this environment? And so uh, his team came up with a way to kind of do this fire writing with your finger so you could just take notes. But what, ha- what people do is when their arms get tired, they write in a bubble around them. None of the text is flat when you write like this. And so you get this bubble of text all the way around you that gets pulled toward you. <laughs> that is really difficult to flatten out and turn it into actual legible written text. So all of these things, um, there's so much more work that needs to be done before we can enjoy it with other people uh, and strategize in those environments. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm shaking in my boots, getting ready to teach my first VR class in the spring of next year. And it's, it's exciting, you know, we'll get everyone a headset or how it was subsidized the cost of a headset. They're cheap now. Um, but 
the network capabilities, the onboarding, the specific yeah. virtual environments we use to have everyone together. At face value, it looks looks possible, but from everyone I've talked to who's tried this, there are just so many technological hurdles. It's like you know trying to set up a a website in in the year nineteen ninety five, right? Sure. Uh, now, if you don't mind my, are you, uh, you going to use a uh, Mozilla Hubs-like platform for that? We'll jump into Hubs. We'll jump into VR Chat. Um, we're probably going to use Quest 2s, especially if we mm -hmm. can get um, some sort of educational permission to avoid the need for a Facebook account, which which I yeah. think yeah. is possible. Um, otherwise, there are like some ethical questions there. So. Yeah, um, but we'll use whatever we we can, and and right now I'm I'm learning from um, other people who are doing similar classes to see see what they've experimented with. We we started using hubs uh, in our research group this past year after after everything got kind of shut down mm -hmm. on um, uh, flat screens or in VR. Well, uh, some of us had uh, some of us had our own sets, mm -hmm. uh, so we would wear our own VR. Uh, uh, headsets and some people didn't so they just logged in on their laptops yeah uh, it was it was very striking to me uh you you can tell right away who's using what because you've got you can use your hands when you have a headset and you have the the controllers and it never occurred to me how important hand gestures were when people are talking uh otherwise people are just they're using their laptops and they're just their avatars are kind of pre-programmed to blink their eyes and look around <laughs> But their hands don't do anything. In fact, I don't even yeah. think they have hands. They're just kind of square bodies. Sure. Yeah. And the other piece of that is uh, if you know someone well enough and you see them in VR, you recognize the types of hand gestures that they, they exactly. like there's a signature, right? A personality signature to that, which makes you feel closer to them. Um, but if, yeah, if they're handsless, then <laughs> it's hard. And the hubs avatars are cute. You got the panda and the little robot, but they're not very anthropomorphic. Or, well, sorry, they're not very human-like. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's kind of a really uh, cool and interesting thing about VR is that, uh, I mean, you don't have to be you if you don't want to be. Uh, you get to be this this other, uh, this uh, this creation, even if it's just for, even if it's really kind of disposable, uh, something that you just pick to use for, you know, 20 minutes during a lab meeting. Yeah, or uh, forty-five minutes for uh, for an ICA meeting. Yeah, um, you know, here we're going to do an after party. Just show up as an avatar. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, all this avatar talk. We should probably have used avatars for this meeting, but one fine day. <laughs> um, I and I've taken a lot. Speaking of time, I've used a lot of your time. Ed, this has been such a great conversation. You know, like the podcast is. It's my favorite opportunity to just shoot the shit with people who I would want to do that with anyway, right at a bar or a conference or over dinner. So I'm glad we got to do this. I'm, I'm very excited to have been able to do this with you, Robbie. And to anyone, uh, go, go back into the databases. There are some absolute gems uh, listening uh, and making me ask questions uh, and rethink avatars and virtual reality and learning. Uh, so go back and listen to the other podcasts. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> this episode sponsored by Ed Downs. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see you next time, I hope, uh, in person or in VR. Sounds good.
All right, that was our episode. Thanks for listening. I'm back here with George and Taylor. A little bit of movie magic. I was able to bring them in quickly. And uh, and oh, yeah. so what should they do if they like what they heard? They should like, subscribe, tell their mom. Tell your mom. Tell your dad. Tell any parental figure. Follow us online at SpartyCast. Tune in next time where I will be speaking with Wired journalist Cecilia D'Anastasio with whom I've collaborated on a project. We've talked about some of her articles I've contributed. And now I'm gonna get her input on ideas relating to the metaverse. And of course, avatars, because what else would I talk about in this podcast? Oh, yeah. um, anything else we, we wanna tell them? I think it's, it's telling that you use the phrase metaverse. Um, because Robbie recommended a book to me called Snow Crash that is solely about one of the earliest conceptualizations of a metaverse. So yeah. you can see how literature has inspired even this very podcast and conversation. It has, it has. And in fact, we, we talk a bit about Snow Crash uh, okay. in this episode. Um, that of course, they just got here after I recorded. There's the movie <laughs> magic, everyone. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks for, for tuning in and uh, thanks for subscribing. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.